You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Heather. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? Uh, you know, I like to say these days I have nothing to complain about, but that doesn't mean I won't complain. Okay. Well, I'm sure you have plenty to complain about if you're living in the same part of the world I am, which you more or less are. You're in Washington, D.C., You're so you're on the same seaboard I'm on anyway, right? I believe we are now in different quarantine bubbles, actually, and that your states, your states and my states are separated by a two-week self-quarantine. That may be. So, if, I, I mean, I guess I'm in New Jersey, not New York, but maybe New Jersey is has the New York policy toward it, people like it you? It does. I know this because I had had a fiendish plan of um, getting a beach house at the Jersey Shore and then making trips in to see my in-laws in Brooklyn. And um, when conveniently New York and New Jersey moved together, thus placing both the beach house and the in-laws off limits. Ah, well, there are people who have in-laws that would lead them to say that's a blessing, but that's probably not not the case for you. So I'm sorry about that. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Heather Hurlbert, well-known uh, thinker about foreign policy and writer about foreign policy. You uh, have written about it for places like uh, Foreign Affairs and Politico, and I, and I guess you're... Um, more regular gig is with New York Magazine's Daily Intelligencer. And and you're with New America, formerly known as the New America Foundation. Uh, And there you are the director of the New Models of Policy Change Project, which sounds commendable. We need new models. Um, And finally, you you are uh, co-host of the all-too-rarely-seen Dresbert podcast on Blogging Heads TV. The Dresdroot podcast is rapidly becoming like the ivory-billed woodpecker, right? More more rumored than seen, but yet not entirely given up on and sort of important in its iconic non-existence, right? And we're keeping hope alive of seeing it any moment now or year. So th- this is part of a series of conversations I am having with foreign policy thinkers about the future of American foreign policy. Um about how we should engage with the world, um, certainly including how we should do that in the event that there's a change of administration uh, after uh, November, which we don't know at, at the moment. But um, I, uh, you, you are certainly on on the team uh, that uh, that is hoping that there will be. I mean, historically, you, you've identified as I don't know, liberal, progressive. Um, uh, a, and more or less, I guess, a, a Democrat. Um, and, uh, in fact, I want to get you to put a label on yourself because in this series of conversations, I'm talking to people from various parts of the spectrum, the foreign policy spectrum, you know, realists, neoconservatives, liberal internationalists, liberal interventionists, and various stripes of, of, of these things. And, um, I, you know, it's, it's not as clean a taxonomy as might be convenient for me, right? I mean, it's, it's not always easy to put people in boxes. So I'm going to let them do it themselves. What, what do you call, what do you call yourself in terms of your foreign policy ideology? 
So one of the reasons that I called my project at New America New Models of Policy Change is exactly that the existing boxes don't work very well for me. And um, in a sort of you heard it here first. So one of my my fantasies for years has been to come up with the taxonomy that replaces the infamous Jeffersonian, Hamiltonian, Jacksonian, Wilsonian four-part um, which is very fun. It's a great party game, but I think it's really um, past its usefulness. And one of the things I've been saying is that if we um, if we aren't able to sort of turn over the turn over a new leaf and bring in um, at this point the Biden administration that that wants to get back to some basic principles of internationalism, I'm I'm fully prepared to go sit in a garret and basically try to to reinvent the taxonomy. Um, while otherwise finding it more and more difficult to operate in a in a shrinking public space of a second Trump term, but that got dark awfully fast. So <laughs> we'll back off from that and say number one, so I'm an internationalist. Full stop. I that is a label that I, I adopt with great uh with great pride. Meaning the US should be engaged in the world. Correct. Correct. Meaning Does it mean more than that to you or just it, it's that general? It is that general to me, and I insist on it being that general to me. And you will notice that I am not using... So I consider myself a liberal internationalist, but to me, that does not that that doesn't say you approved of X military intervention or Y military intervention, um, because usually I didn't. And also, um, I think increasingly, um, and this is where we start to edge, we start to edge me away from the sort of what you would think of as the centrist establishment. Um, increasingly, the liberal international order, whatever you mean by that, which we can get into, except that we'd probably need a whole nother hour, um, has seen its best days. And if if a liberal internationalist is somebody who believes that our great job is to kind of shore up the existing liberal international order, that's not me because unfortunately I think um, our task is rather to determine which parts of it can be saved and built from and which parts have to be abandoned, reinvented, etc. So, so then I think by most people's druthers that I, might, I sort of fail the liberal internationalist test. Um, and, and then you have to, so, so what I increasingly want, and it's not one of your labels, so you're not going to let me get away with it, but I want to call myself a pragmatist, frankly, because I think there's this interesting kind of renaissance, um, Henry Farrell in the, in the academic sector, and interestingly of all people, Bob Zellick, who's not someone that I necessarily ideologically have a huge amount in common with, have both sort of tried to resurrect. He, he was a, for, he was a. First George Bush guy, among other things. First George Bush and second George Bush and president of the World Bank and um, not coincidentally has a book coming out that I am in the process of reviewing for the Post, which is why it's top of mind. But it is this idea that it's important both to have principles which are front and center in foreign policy, but also to acknowledge that um, when one is a very large and powerful state, one is just not always going to act out of one is not always going to keep all of one's principles. So does that mean you, you advocate that other people follow international law, but you don't have to? It means that you advocate that everybody follow international law and you are able to contain your shock when people don't. But that you should be able to get away with it more often than others because you're powerful. Um, that it's perfectly 
expectable for you to try to not get away with it. And it's perfectly expectable for others to try to come after you for not getting away with it. And, and this is where we get, you know, to another point, understanding is where the pragmatism comes in, that it was much easier to have one rule for yourself and one rule for everybody else when you were, um, by yards, the most powerful country in the world. And that, um, trying to have a rules-based international system when power is more evenly dispersed is going to mean that it actually matters more whether you live by the rules or not than it did in the past. Okay. So let's, uh, before we pursue that point, let's back up a little and, and elaborate uh, on some terminology. So use the term liberal internationalist, liberal international order, Sometimes we hear rules-based inter, uh, international order, which I think is often used synonymously with liberal international order. Um, but the idea I gather, and I'll, I'll just correct me uh, if I'm wrong, but liberal international order largely took shape after World War II. Uh, it involves a certain accumulation of international law, but also international institutions, certainly including the United Nations, uh, you know, World Bank, IMF, uh, now the WTO, and so on. And um, part of the idea is if people would, would take the rules seriously, maybe we could all get along a little better and have fewer wars and stuff. Um, and that is a liberal internationalist view. So far, would you... Uh, accept that or would you amend it? So I think it's really important to to put out that view and put out the critique of it at the same time, right? Which is well, that, is that is that right insofar as it goes? It's that, right insofar as it goes, but if you don't mention power and how power undergirded it and what it was there, which power it was there in support of, you are mm-hmm. kind of presenting a, an incomplete picture and then walking into, I think, the deserved critique that you get from both the realists and the progressives, and the progressives say, well, this order that you are so prone to beat your chest about, as you mentioned earlier, you know, you, you, the West, you, the U.S. just ignored the order part and the rules part whenever it didn't suit you, and it was you designed it to uphold your system of capitalism and to to push aside possible competitors in that space, which is absolutely true and fair. And it also overlooks the realist argument, which says, yeah, the law part is really nice, but the law part worked because of the power underneath it. And if you, you know, cute liberals all hug the order part, then you, um, you, you're overlooking the, the, the really critical piece. You need a hegemon to enforce the rules, and, it, and it's in the nature of the things that the hegemon tends to get a better deal sometimes and occasionally ignores the rules. Right. And then, but there's a third actually not so much a critique but an extra element of this and why i why i continue to like to sort of emphasize the liberal in liberal international order because the thing the thing about this order that we're really going to miss for all the ways that it absolutely was dressing on top of a set of power relationships in the way that we've just described. And I, I fully accept the realist critique. But it's also the case that this particular style of dressing, of, of putting a legal order on top of a power order, actually created the space to contest the order. 
And one of the really interesting things about the place we're in now, both domestically in the U.S., um, but also globally, is, is the movements... The movements that grew up in the spaces that the legal part of the order allowed them to. So the whole idea of human rights, the whole idea of minority rights, the whole idea of um, contesting power within a state of diffusing power to non-state actors, the um, the spread of rights um, to whole groups that were previously excluded so that, you know, I mean, so that someone like me, who has two X chromosomes gets to participate in the national security conversation so that people who are black or gay or Muslim or minority, whatever kind of minority are in whatever country they are also were able to fight their way into the conversation is, is a direct result of this order that we created. So that's- wait, let me, let me make sure I understand you. Um, you see more individual women and individual people of color in the conversation. That's true. Are you saying that 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 is a result of the liberal international order? Uh, I mean, I mean, you're not just saying that you know uh, states with a majority population that is people of color uh, are have more of a say, and maybe they get to say things in the gen- UN General Assembly or something. Or the, you're not just saying that, right? I mean, you're, you're talking. You're talking about social change in a certain sense, right? And you're attributing that to the liberal international order? So if you think about the founding of the UN and the drafting of the UN Declaration of of Human Rights, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody who was involved, there was a, a general feeling that maybe it was a good idea not to have colonies anymore. But, I mean, as we know, not everybody thought it was a good idea not to have colonies anymore. So even the idea that um, the nations of Africa, Asia should be fully represented was, was not originally sort of part of the power relations of the order, right? After Mm -hmm. world war two, much less the idea that um, women should have equal access to the levers of power and leadership. But the initial things, and I'm, I'm just picking those two dimensions, I could, I could pick others. But the enshrining of, so first there's the enshrining of, of rights, universal rights in, mm-hmm. in, in the, the Universal Declaration. Then you have the sort of further, the growth, so you, then you have the, the, the decolonization movement, which is this amazing global movement, which, to your point, kind of pings back and forth with the American civil rights movement in a way that is both entwined with what the U.S. government is doing to try to fight communism and also in opposition to it in this really interesting and complicated way that we haven't done nearly enough to to think about or understand and that we don't talk about in the mainstream discourse um, and that, frankly, those of us who are white don't read the books about it, don't do the studying about it. But but it's they're two distinct but interestingly interconnected stories. Mm-hmm. Then the human rights movement, as we knew it, or as you and I are old enough to know it, arises um, in the 70s. And again, you can point to the particular ways that it arises as an individualist capitalist society response to the Soviets. But you can also part to point to the anti-colonial movement, the women's movement, the LGBT movement, um, some of the student movements in, in Europe. So again, it, it both exists within the order and it, it comes to be to be its own its own force. And that's, you know, 
such an interesting, complicated, and and really positive thing about this order that we used to have. Whereas now, if you think about what are the candidates, again, love it or hate it, what are the candidates for, for a next order? And surely, if you posit a Chinese or Sino-Russian kind of information age authoritarian or consumer authoritarian state, the, the essence of that is ain't no room in there for anything to challenge the core the core structures of the state. So there is this there is this aspect of the liberal international order that I think much IR theory doesn't have room to consider, but that we're really going to miss terribly when it's when it's gone. Let me pick up on one uh, strand in there: the the uh, human rights becoming a more prominent subject of kind of international discourse, and and kind of. And, and 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 get back to the question of what what you're calling pragmatism entails. Um, one thing that uh, has happened uh, to some extent in international law and certainly in U.S. policy is that uh, human rights has been used as a justification for military intervention. Yep. So in international law, we have this notion of responsibility to protect. You know, if if the leader of a country is not fulfilling his or her obligation to provide fundamental human rights for the people, I guess, or something, then they are uh, – then you have a better argument for intervening in one way poss- or another possibly. Can I, possibly- can I yeah. cut you off for a second? Sure. Because – so the responsibility to protect, the way it was originally elaborated was very carefully specified that there were all of these steps that states were supposed to take when other states weren't protecting the basic rights of their people mm-hmm. before you got to force. And the interesting, and it, it is now deservedly in ruins as a doctrine because, as you say, of I'm the glad to hear is, that. I didn't know because it has gotten us into a lot of trouble. Uh, as, well, but, but it was never, I mean, it's and it's an interesting story. Um, I'm a little biased because I worked for a couple of the people who were deeply involved in creating it. And who created it as a response to, I mean, as a response to the catastrophe that was the Balkans, where nothing was done until there were no choices but military force. And then force was an exceedingly blunt instrument and produced Mm -hmm. unsatisfactory results. But what I think, I mean, what I would say the failure there was, and I think you can, you can apply this to a lot of the, the lessons learned from the 90s were that what what was never addressed was well there's there are good reasons not necessarily sufficient reasons but good reasons why nobody gets involved at earlier stages which have to do with politics and resources and so when states are willing to get involved in the ways other states mistreat their populations it's because there are other interests at play and so you were you were always going to be at risk as, of being sort of used as the blanket to cover something else. Mm-hmm. But but I just I just had to jump in and say the the folks who put R two P together were trying to create an environment for more diplomacy, more assistance, more civic society building, which you know frankly we failed catastrophically to be interested in doing as a global community and particularly as the U.S. Okay. So um, 
But it, the, the idea lives on that we may need to intervene militarily for the sake of the population within a, a given country. In fact, that's often part of the rationale, even in Iraq where it wasn't the main rationale. It was used rhetorically. And then in some cases, like Libya, uh, it was a, a primary part of the rationale. It was uh, thought of as a humanitarian intervention. Um, in Syria, where we helped funnel arms into Syria, and I would say uh, in the end counterproductively because we wound up with Assad still in charge and the weapons basically went to get more people killed in the meanwhile and, and, and create more refugees, but that's just that's just my view. But um, th- there the, the, uh, the rationale was... Very much, there's a lot of humanitarian um, rationale. Uh, go back to Kosovo during uh, Clinton's time. There was a lot of uh, a reference to to you know the, the, that's that was an essentially and fundamentally humanitarian rationale. So, um, and 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 that list of things may give people a sense for why there is now some skepticism. I mean, some of these things have just. Uh, not gone well. Some of the things done in the name of the population within the country we were intervening in. What? So you called yourself a pragmatist, uh, and and I think I take you to mean that that's almost a kind of a variant of a liberal internationalist. I mean, I, I gather you you uh, correct me if I'm wrong about that. But in any event, um, what what does a pragmatist think about continuing to use? Uh, human rights and appeals to the suffering of the people within a country using that as a basis for military intervention. So I guess I would, I would dispute, I thought the way you framed it earlier was, was reasonable. I would dispute the idea. Um, the, the U S Basically, Wait, you would dispute which idea, though? The idea that any of the interventions you've named were actually done because of the suffering of the population. Even Libya? Um, it was done to protect, very explicitly to protect yeah. people in Libya. So Libya, the beginning, until you shift to... Oh, yeah, that's the problem. Right. The shift is the, but that's my point. The shift shift is the problem. Um, I mean, another one that's really purely humanitarian in nature that we don't talk about because frankly, it worked out pretty well and it's boring is East Timor. Um, Another one that's purely humanitarian in nature worked out pretty well. We don't talk about it because it's boring is um, Cote d'Ivoire. And Cote d'Ivoire is interesting because it happens. Remind us when, remind us when these things were. They are so little discussed. Right. So, um, East Timor is in the nineties. And that, the other reason that that is, that's also the really rare one where the U.S. managed to actually not get out in front. That, um, that was largely led by the Australians and the U.S. did some helping. And there was an opposition that was ready to come in and be the government. And they're not perfect, but there's no more genocide there. So. You know, um, and the Cote d'Ivoire is really interesting because it happens right at the same time as Libya. And it only happens in the Security Council. So there's an election in Cote d'Ivoire and the loser refuses to leave power and is threatening mass violence that, that would split the country along ethnic lines. The French go to the Security Council and say, we gave you like you have your Libya toy. Now let us do this. And so um, everyone says, yeah, OK, fine. And in fact, that one goes pretty neatly. Um, again, the, the outgoing president who'd lost the election actually leaves. A new president comes in. Again, I am not going to argue that Cote d'Ivoire becomes Luxembourg, but 
there isn't massive ethnic violence. So just a point, and again, why I'm a pragmatist is that we actually do know how to do military intervention for specific, relatively small-scale targeted humanitarian purposes successfully. What we don't know how to do is things where we are really mixing purely humanitarian goals and geopolitical goals. And that is that you, you, Gaddafi is that you cannot go all the way back to Somalia, where again, you have a purely humanitarian mission that then we can't resist a shift and there's a problem. Um, and Syria, I think, as you alluded to, there were so many different competing, um, competing forces putting weapons and troops into Syria for competing purposes that, um, right. Yeah. And, and that's why just to put an asterisk on something you said earlier when you said, well, ironically, the liberal international order created conditions by which it could be challenged. For example, human rights has become a thing. Well, often human rights is used by powerful countries to excuse their intrusions. And so a cynic might say that actually on balance – uh, it's not so clear that the emergence of human rights as a thing has been uh, some kind of universal challenge to hegemonic countries. Often they actually use uh, the rhetoric of human rights to pursue agendas that are actually geopolitical. Certainly Syria was. Syria was as much about Iran and Russia and our desire to curb their influence, I think, as it was about um, uh, the suffering of any Syrians. So why I am ultimately a liberal internationalist as much as I, you know, sort of desperately want to be something else is that that argument you just made sounds really great in an American context. And it's, it's a really great sort of cynical, jaundiced, you know, bit by reality argument. But if you go to if you go talk to Uyghurs or if you go to Myanmar or if you go to Zimbabwe or um, see, I could pick some places where the U.S. is the problem. If you go to Central America, um, you do not so much encounter people who say, oh, do not come at us with your human rights. You encounter people and organizations who either say, would you please, for the love of God, say something because things get better when the U.S. says something? Or they say, would you please, for the love of God, be consistent and enact your human rights the way you say that they mean? So, like, yes, powerful governments use human rights, but so do deeply disempowered peoples and groups to make meaningful changes for themselves. And if you, I think a big Actually, a big problem with all the schools of American foreign policy at this point is that we're still, and this extends way beyond the, the human rights conversation that we're having, is that we're still terribly captive of, of ourselves. And the amount of commentary, just as true of all the schools, and to migrate, it's just as true on the left as in the center and the right, that never goes and asks people in the affected place, well, what do you think and what should... What could have been done from the outside to help you or 20 years on, you know, did it make it worse that the U.S. bombed Kosovo? You won't find any Kosovars who think that, by the way. It's, it's just an interesting thing. Um, you definitely find some amb ambivalence other places. I mean, Iraq, obviously. Um, but we're so, we're so wrapped up in ourselves. And as, again, as we, as our, as our, the size of our hegemony shrinks, um, both because of incredibly stupid things like we're doing to ourselves right now, but also just because power is diffused. We've got to get more used to the idea of taking others seriously as actors. 
Okay. Uh, so I'm taking, so, so to get back to like how, uh, what defines your foreign policy position, the thing you're calling pragmatism, uh, the fact that you brought up these cases where you think, uh, inter- human rights based intervention has worked suggests to me that you want to say that yes, there is a place for intervening in your ideology. There is a place for military intervention in the name of human rights. You concede that it's often um, been done, uh, well, at times when it shouldn't have been done at all or been done badly. Um, the uh, and, I, and I assume you might say the same thing about economic sanctions when done in the name of human rights. I mean, there are people, I'm sure there are lots of people in Venezuela who are saying, yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of glad you're paying attention to us, but I, I suspect that some of them would say, but these sanctions are not helping me right now. They're hurting me. Um, so, uh, so I, I assume I'm correct in that inference. You do want to preserve human rights as a basis for intervention. You want to do a better job of deciding when to do it, how to do it. Uh, am I right in, in that? So actually, I want to change the way we think about making U.S. foreign policy so that the whole category of military intervention is not one that we go to easily. Um, and same with sanctions, actually, that we, we grossly overuse sanctions, and it's really a problem. That I want to change the calculus of what are our tools, sort of so that we, and frankly, the problem with military intervention is because we have so... We have so overfunded, um, we have so overbuilt our military capacity and underbuilt our civilian capacity and overpromised in what we can accomplish that we now just have this bad um, sort of generational cross-party, cross-media, cross-academic bad habit that the only thing we can talk about is military intervention. And so... I realize this sounds deeply unsatisfying and it sounds very suspicious to, to people on the left who say, and I understand why they say, you just have to get rid of the tools. But what I want, and it, it may be that we're not capable of this as a, as a society, I worry about that a lot, is to remake our habits of thinking about how we are in the world so that both we don't have such easy recourse to those tools, we understand, and we when we do bring them up, we think a lot more about the complexities and second order effects that you've referenced and that we have more humility. But, but, but how do you do that? I mean, it, 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 you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a little like the, the, uh, what conservatives say about domestic policy. It's not that, it's not that government intervention in the, in the economy and in social policy is a bad thing in and of itself. It's just that it always gets corrupted. By lobbyists and so on, and and, and you know, uh, that's the conservative argument. But and, and you and you, and so I guess I'd ask, why should we expect uh, that things would get better along these lines? I mean, if I if you were running for president, that would be the answer. But you're not, and in fact, uh, the people that uh, we're hearing about as Joe Biden advisors are largely people who've been there before. They're people who were there when the, when when. When the stuff that gets complained about was happening. So, um, what, why would we hope that, uh, things would get, that we would suddenly start intervening judiciously? So, if we're, and this is true, by the way, actually, I think of just about anybody, um, because of course, Barack Obama came into office intending to intervene a whole lot less. 
And he wound up intervening somewhat less, but also, of course, dramatically ramping up the use of drones. Um, And why is that? It's not because Barack Obama is an immoral or dishonest person. It's not because Barack Obama deliberately lied to the American people. It's because Barack Obama used the tools that he had available and sort of gauged what, what his ends were. So actually... The kind of longer term implication of of what I'm saying, which is, again, I know it's deeply unsatisfying, but there aren't any there aren't any answers to U.S. foreign policy that are immediately satisfying. If you if anyone gives you one, then they're sort of not being straight with you. The longer term is is number one, re reinvigorating the power of Congress and the ability to to sort of place constraints on policies that we shouldn't be undertaking anyway for the reasons that I laid out. Not just military intervention, which we love to talk about, but also arms sales, also sanctions, and really thus forcing um, an administration, but also scholarship and media attention and how can you make your career in doing preventive long-term work. No, it's not nearly as sexy as starting a war. Well, what if you could actually make your career in it? You know, why Why didn't we have, why didn't we all talk about health security all the time? I mean, those people were there and they were the most ignored and put upon people because nobody, want, nobody wants to talk about a plague until until we're in one. So so there is, there's a long-term structure. If, if you're serious about this stuff, there's a long, there's long-term structural um, biases that, that we have to go after in a long-term way, regardless mm-hmm. of who's president. Okay, so let's, um, we've talked a fair amount about, uh, I mean, I'm going to disappoint you now and get back to the question of military intervention before we move beyond it. Um, but we've talked a lot about uh, military intervention based on what's going on within a country. There is also, of course, um, the question of intervening on grounds of a country's like external behavior. Like, uh, you know, Russia's behavior in Crimea, China's behavior in, in its region and, and so on. Um, I mean, uh, uh, I guess a, in a way, a, a textbook case of, uh, liberal internationalism kind of, you know, seeming to work, at least in the short run, uh, is, uh, you know, the Persian Gulf War, uh, Iraq commits transborder aggression against Kuwait. The UN, you know, the uh, the UN exists in in no small part to stop that. The US goes through the UN mechanism, gets Security Council authorization, rolls back the aggression and then stops there. Chooses not to go to Baghdad. That that that's, you know, Maybe that's a relatively easy case that was done in kind of textbook fashion. There may have been long-term consequences, but leaving all that aside. Um, so, so a classic liberal internationalist would say, yes, that was transborder aggression. You do it the right way through the UN. We did it. Um, first of all, do you accept that in that case? And secondly, uh, could you then venture beyond into the more problematic cases uh, where either the, the aggressions – well, maybe a little less clear, or we can't get you in support, or you know, various various problems arise. Yeah, so it's funny the the Iraq War one as is easy for all the reasons you lay out, um, but it does um, 
And I was ambivalent about it at the time. I had just started my career and was ambivalent about it at the time um, and remain ambivalent about it now because, as you say, it, we, the United States, couldn't live with the consequence. Our political system couldn't live with the consequences of choosing not to go to Baghdad. Um, and, you know, there is this way that uh, the Republican Party couldn't live with the consequences of choosing not to go to Baghdad. And the Democratic Party, for reasons that we could take another hour to talk about, couldn't live with that unresolved issue for the Republicans. And and so, you know, we, we can kind of trace the downward spiral from there. So, you know, to me, the Iraq one argument uh, war is a very powerful argument for the idea that um, as much as I say, you have to, you have to keep, you want to keep the option of a lawful use of force in your quiver as a great power. It, 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 there is the legitimate counter argument that, that it's really the cases where that's actually your best, your best bet are vanishingly small. Now to jump into some of the harder ones, I will still argue that um, there, I, and I was in government for this, I still don't see a better outcome than what we have in the Balkans. And what we have in the Balkans is really suboptimal. Let me be the first person to say that what we have in the Balkans is really suboptimal. And um, Serbia and, and Kosovo in particular have really struggled to establish themselves as, as um, yeah. and Bosnia also as, um, I'm trying to think. Of yeah, there, there are two different main interventions. There's first of all, the, the you know, during the Bosnian genocide, the intervention, which was authorized by the Security Council, so as a matter of international law, um, that was fine. Uh, I think that's generally thought of more highly than the Kosovo intervention, which lacked Security Council authorization, and which I, I'm not an expert. I, 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 I gather remains un, somewhat unsettled. Uh, no, yeah, and you have to acknowledge. So you have to acknowledge that the Kosovo intervention and the choice to go around the Security Council, which again I was writing speeches for that. You have to acknowledge that that opens the door that the Bush administration then runs through on Iraq, and I mm-hmm. think that's that's a lump that we that we have to take. You, I wanna, you mean ignoring the Security Council is the door that the Bush administration runs through to invade Iraq? Yes, right. right. Yeah, and and I think I mean again, like you you have to own that, and if you don't own that, it's I mean you can own it and still say it was mm-hmm. worth it. Um, but I want to go back. I actually want to go back to Bosnia for a second because. It's all very well to say, oh, the Bosnia intervention, that was so great because the Bosnia intervention was, is a catastrophe and thousands of people died who shouldn't have had to die if we had been able to figure out if, if, I mean, the Europeans. You mean because we didn't intervene early enough? It's a catastrophe or? Um, we either, we didn't intervene or we didn't signal serious. I mean, the, the reason that we eventually had to intervene in the way that we did was that for so long, we didn't signal that there were any real consequences whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And Europe was divided and the U.S., different U.S. administrations sent mixed signals and um, forces on the ground took that as a signal to do, to, to ethnically cleanse territories. And they did in an appalling way. And um, the, in a way, that lesson is kind of the the original those those moments in ninety one and ninety two, um, and I was I was at a negotiation where we would stay up all night 
trying to come up with some thing, and then you'd go to sleep for four hours, and another market would have been shelled, and another dozen civilians would have been killed. Um, in the By the way, where exactly were you working in the Clinton administration? Um, actually, this was before the Clinton administration. Um, I was at OSCE. I was on the U.S. delegation to Which OSCE. Which is the organization for... for security and cooperation in Europe, the Helsinki okay. process. I see. Okay. So, so I lived through... And as during a, Kosovo, you were in the Clinton administration. And during Kosovo, I was okay. a speechwriter for Madeleine Albright. Okay. So, okay. yeah, I was as, as in that as, as any young okay. person could have been. But but in the early 90s in Europe, um, you know, coming off of all the joy and celebration that was um, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany and this moment where there's this sort of hopes for U.S.-Russia rapprochement, Europe and the U.S. could not figure out what to do about a band of people on the ground who really wanted something and didn't care at all about it and basically said, you can take your international law and you can come get us. And it took 18 months during which a lot of people died for um, to even begin the process of, of, all right, we'll come and get you. And then it took, as you know, another few years before the Holbrook process finally ended the war in a very unsatisfying way to, to all involved. So, you know, in, in retrospect, we... Um, we didn't take quite enough humility out of how hard that was. And then we tried, and you can you can blame the Bush administration for taking whatever humility we learned and throwing it out the window and trying to do Iraq with where, you know, if we inadequately understood what we were doing in the Balkans, the Bush administration said, we don't really, we don't want to talk to you people who understand what's going to be on the ground in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, that does just the point you made about how our, you know, the intervention in Kosovo was kind of an example of what you alluded to much earlier in the conversation. Your hegemons are going to hegemon, right? Like, okay, it wasn't it wasn't an obvious compliance with international law to intervene. But, hey, we're a hegemon. And it just seems to me that one downside of that kind of casualness is exactly the one you alluded to, is that. Hegemons are in a position to either strengthen or weaken norms about yep. compliance with international law. Norms that will, will or won't be followed by their own successor, uh, administrations, but also norms that will be followed or not by other nations around the world. And, you know, one thing that, that bothers me, I mean, just to put in a little sermon of my own here is, um, you know, I was almost surprised when the first George Bush administration was taking the UN so seriously. It's like Cold War over and this institution, the, this, the UN, which has been kind of frozen in time because during the Cold War, either Russia or either the Soviet Union or the US was always going to exercise veto power, basically. There was nothing they agreed on. Um, and suddenly it's the Security Council comes to life authorizes a military intervention that is justified under the rules of the UN. And I thought, well, maybe uh, George Bush will be the first in a series of presidents who will take international law seriously and try to establish a global norm for following it. And I think for a long time we had the power to do that. You know, we were the hegemon. That's less true now. And, and, um, and in any event, we have not been a very good role models in this regard. 
by and large. But I just want to say, like, you know, this is I think this is the price you pay if you if you just adopt the kind of inherited cynicism about hegemons getting to violate the rules is, well, then you're talking about a world where rules are never widely and consistently respected. And, and is that a world we can afford to live in? Given where technology is headed in various senses, given the, given the various new realms where we need arms control in space with bioweapons, uh, cyber, uh, war, you know, and so on, um, with pandemics, you know, I mean, this is, this is the, the question I, I ask a pragmatist. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. And the way I would answer it is to, to sort of go back to my point about the spaces in the order, which is that in spite of the kind of cynicism with which the U.S., but all the great powers have treated um, the U.N. norms. And I really, I mean, again, we see our own shortcomings, but um, if you spend any time around international law, you really see that, um, what is it, the, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. Uh, it ain't just us, unfortunately. But what the experiment of the last 75 years has actually produced is a, a, a group of smaller and middle powers that are actually very invested in the UN and international law. And on the one hand, we don't tend to see this much in the US. And when we do, we kind of brush it aside. But it produces really interesting things like the ban treaty, right? And the ban treaty is basically um, the non-nuclear weapons states and awkwardly a couple of states that are covered by the US nuclear umbrella. So they are sort of interestingly, you could you could describe them in a couple different ways, signing a treaty that basically says, hey, US, Russia, China, Britain, France, you promised to get rid of your nuclear weapons. You didn't. We are now going to start moving forward on telling you how to do that. And right now, you know, from a great power politics point of view, you sort of look at that and you say, yeah, like, who cares? But one can imagine um, shifts in power over time where some of the non-nuclear powers become powerful enough to to make that norm awkward and interesting for the U.S. In what, um, in what way? How would they – I mean, you could say that uh – North Korea made it awkward. I mean, you know, I mean, how do you, how, how, how does a middle power make it awkward other than develop, developing nuclear weapons, which several have done? The promise you're referring to, by the way, is kind of in either implicit or explicit in the non-proliferation treaty from the 1960s, right? We said, okay, everybody else, no nukes. We know we've got them, but we're going to reduce our stockpile and we'll eventually get out of the game was kind of the deal, right? So the way the way the middle powers make it awkward is they start refusing to they do what New Zealand did in the 90s and they start refusing to allow you to dock your nuclear ships there Um, and they start refusing to allow you to do overflights and they they insist that you declare whether you have nuclear weapons in your ships or on your planes when they overfly and that is tedious and and, um, really restricts the the freedom of operation that not just the US but other big militaries are are used to having um, you again, I don't think this isn't something that's going to happen tomorrow or, or next week. Um, but similarly in the, the development space, um, there is, there's an awful lot of respect for UN norms and UN structures, even when the structures again are not um, as, as functional as, as we 
wish they were, although God knows we're, we got no standing to complain about anybody else's government structures right now. But, um, but the rest of the world looks at those and says, hey, these function for us and we actually would like to keep them. And if you, the U.S., would like to, would like to go away. So you kind of create this world where a middle power is trying to balance between, on the one hand, picking a big power to, to bandwagon with and also trying to, to sort of have, have as much of the shelter of the system of international law as, as it can get. And that's a very interesting, complicated world. And frankly, I don't know that any of our systems of thought, which all, by the way, another thing that's wrong with the U.S. foreign policy debate is that all of our schools flow from 19th century Europe. So I don't know that we have a paradigm yet that describes what this challenge is going to look like. Okay. Let me ask about a country that's much in the news and um, embodies both the question about what you do about internal conditions within a country that you don't approve of and what you do about external behavior, and that's China. So we, you know, we've all heard about the Uyghurs, the, the internment of, of, uh, some, we don't, we don't, I don't think have super reliable numbers, but possibly maybe 10% of the Uyghur population at least has been in, um, these, uh, so-called what the Chinese government calls re-education camps, uh, not voluntarily, it is safe to say. Um, that's the internal condition. There's also, of course, Hong Kong. Um, I think that's a little, it's a, it's a little more challenging to, uh, it's a little less paradigmatic in a certain sense as, 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 as a kind of a human rights issue because Hong, the whole situation is so idiosyncratic. But anyway, there are these internal things. And then there's uh, China's external behavior, which hasn't been like immensely belligerent by any means. I mean, God knows they don't invade countries the way we do, but they do seem to be laying claim to some uh, aquatic territory that uh, is – not recognized under international law as theirs, at least as I understand it. You would know more about that than I do. Um, anyway, there, there are calls to both do something about like the Uyghur situation and to counter China's regional ambitions. Um, what kind of thoughts do you have about those two things? Yeah, so I want to start with that if you're Vietnam or the Philippines and you have China taking your fishing boats and taking your citizens captive, um, it, they, it really is, it is regionally quite belligerent, even though it's not belligerent in the way that, as you say, U.S. foreign policy has been belligerent over the last couple of decades. But if you sit in Southeast Asia or I mean, if you sit in India after this, you know, beating to death of more than a dozen Indian sword soldiers on the Indo-Chinese border, um, it's plenty, you know, beating soldiers to death with sticks is plenty belligerent. Um, so we, you're in this new period where um, Beijing has shifted gears in how, how assertive does it want to be? How much space does it want to take up in its quest to be recognized as, as a global power of the first rank, if not the absolute first um, sort of equivalent to, feelings about both Chinese, both contemporary and historical greatness. So, you know, the first thing you say, I mean, back to a point you were making earlier, is that the treatment of Uyghurs, the treatment of Tibetans, um, the treatment of political dissidents, uh, the treatment of people in Hong Kong, um, the treatment of religious minorities just in general, is a, is a catastrophic problem, and it's not something that can be addressed with the use of force. 
So you just, you got to be clear about that. We were, we were clear even in the, well, in, in most of the most belligerent discussion during the Cold War, nobody ever thought you were going to invade the Soviet Union to deal with the plight of Soviet Jewry. Just to take an example. So it is possible, it is possible to be very serious about human rights in a country and to say, look, you know, military response isn't appropriate, isn't proportional, isn't effective. Um, so that, and then the other thing, again, that's really different about the China challenge. Um, and then I'm hoping we're going to go back to discussing schools and the China challenge, because that's really interesting. And American foreign policy thinkers don't at all line up the way you might expect that they would, is that, um, the U S and our allies are economically intertwined with China in a way that um, there isn't an easy remedy for. And so you're kind of classic. Oh, you have this, you have this thought that the U S can sort of build, you know, an internet 2.0, a globalization 2.0 and can decouple is the buzzword, but you can't decouple Vietnam from China. You can't decouple the Philippines. You can't even decouple Australia from China. It's like saying you could decouple Mexico from the U.S. economically. And so if these econ- these countries that are both major economic partners and major security partners of the U.S. also have to be partners of China, then you're, you know, we're frankly sort of still struggling for what the what the mix of compete and cooperate looks like and the existing, the existing military contracts we have are not good or appropriate ones. Well, that leaves economics, but you're, it, I think I hear a note of skepticism about how, uh, about cautioning against rushing headlong into like say disengagement as, as a uh, full on economic disengagement as some kind of punishment for Chinese behavior, whether internal or external. Uh, is that right? What I want us to, to see the U.S. do is start from the position of, of sort of not asking what will hurt Beijing, but of saying what will actually benefit um, U.S. workers and, and U.S. communities, right? Because China experts make a point with which I agree, which is that there isn't actually any single thing you can do that will get Beijing to change what Beijing is doing. So focus on... You think on, they are pretty resistant to incentives that are realistic for us to apply? Um, I think on specific small points, we have plenty of leverage, which we could apply to get specific moves on specific things. But to get China to change the... I mean, what sort of the goals that, say, President Trump has would require China to change the structure of its economy and the structure of its strategy. And the power balance between us is not such that we can compel China to change its strategy. Mm-hmm. So that's just a, a, a place of acceptance. And so then you come from that, you say, okay, what does what industries does the U.S. need to preserve to thrive? What industries does the U.S. need to preserve for its national security? What kinds, and this is good, so that's going to spit up some things that we need to be able to do at home or that we need to be able to do with allies, and some things where actually the thing that we need to preserve is the trade with China. And then, you know, and what do we need to invest in ourselves? And this, this is where we move into sort of some argumentation that's usually framed as progressive, Right. Where or, you know, however, it's sort of 
the opposite of internationalist, but actually smart internationalism is going to be based on investments at home. What do we need to be investing in at home in order to be able to either compete or not care and just move along and say, okay, China, you're China going to China, and we're going to sustain our communities this other way. Mm-hmm. You said you wanted to say something about schools. Is that? Uh, do you want to say more or? Oh, right. Yeah. So, um, sorry, COVID brain. I had a moment of schools being like, what the hell are we doing with our children? Are we going to open our, yes, that's another good question, (laughs) but not directly related to China. No. Well, of course, Trump would say it's all, it all flows from, from China, but that's another. No, what I wanted to say is that there's a really interesting, um, strand of kind of left belligerence on China. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that um, that puts um, sort of authoritarian um, state capitalism um, in the basket along with corruption as a, a central threat. And um, there's a really interesting piece uh, that appeared in foreign policy back in maybe it was June by several people who um, had been associated with the Sanders campaign as advisors, laying out a very aggressive, and they actually foresee using sanctions and other um, economic and monetary policy tools very aggressively um, against um, economic corruption, both in capitalist market economies, but also against Beijing um, in a way that, frankly, kind of brings back some of the same debates that you and I were just having about the use of military force, except that this time the people who want to use U.S. hegemony for um, democratic ends are, are on the left, which is just really interesting conversation that we are only starting to scratch. Yeah, with. I'm not familiar with the piece you're talking about, but there is, I think, both in um, on the left and in Trump land, a temptation to combine concerns, actual concerns about Chinese behavior with economic nationalism, uh, with American economic nationalism. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I just mean, you know, with, with uh, concerns about America's domestic economy. And and those two can combine to create a kind of militance. Um on the left toward uh, toward China, but I didn't read the the piece you're talking about. Um, the uh, so uh, what about uh, just a question? I'll throw out um, Taiwan. Uh, what should we go? To, should we go to war on behalf of Taiwan? If not, should we do anything? And what we should be doing a lot of things to make number one make. Taiwan as desirable and stable and independent society as we can to make it um, to make the costs for Beijing high, but also to make the value for Beijing of not going to war high. So I think a, a mistake that U.S. policy toward, toward around Taiwan has has often made in the past is, you know, there's been this really interesting and lively debate. I mean, Taiwan's an amazing democracy, uh, by the way. And so there's a huge debate on Taiwan about what the right relationship toward, toward China is. And, and um, back to my point about sort of we're not the only actor here. 
We had a period of a decade or more where Chinese business really moved to Taiwan. Sorry, Taiwanese business really moved to China. Taiwanese companies built factories in China. Taiwanese investors were wooed home and invested. And it really there was a period that you could kind of look at this and say, okay, if everybody can just be calm, sort of there will slowly be some convergence. But also the thinking was. Um, as we do this, Beijing won't need to invade and won't want to invade because it would mess up. It would convert a very happy source of capital and ingenuity and partnership for Beijing into a sullen colony. Now we see in Hong Kong that、um, although that may have been the calculation of Chinese rulers before Xi, that's not Xi's calculation. So.、Um, But we can't. I mean, you, if 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 Beijing wants badly enough to to land on Taiwan and start a month long guerrilla campaign there, that's what they're going to do. Right. And so I think having both really the determination to do a lot, including a lot of things that the Trump administration couldn't be bothered to do for Hong Kong over the last year,、um, in order to 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 discourage just to to make it to make Beijing look at it and say, yeah, we would be stuck fighting a guerrilla war there for months and months, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the favor of you know like the U.S. making everyone unhappy by dropping a nuclear weapon. It would be Chinese people fighting other Chinese people, and that would be ugly and awful, and we don't want it. And so therefore, we're going to go this other way, right? That's the that's the task with Taiwan.、Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to suggest that it's easy in in any way. Okay, let me ask you just quickly about、um, Iran. I think I know you're、uh, you're thinking well enough to say that you supported the Iran nuclear deal. Wish that we had not backed out of it,、uh, from which has flowed a certain amount of trouble. I think we would both agree.、Um, but what about and and I assume you would you would say if it's possible. To, to get back to where we were, that would be a much better place.、Yeah. Um, but、uh, what about the broader question raised by Ron, which gets back to the question of kind of internal conditions? Like、uh, it's natural for Americans to、uh, wish that、uh, Iran are more were a more thoroughgoing democracy, although it has democratic elements in, of a kind that aren't present in all the countries we、uh, call authoritarian. Or to look at Iran and and wish that、uh, women had more rights and so on. There's a lot of things you could wish were were different. To what extent, if any, should American policy concern itself with those things? And、um, I mean, I know you don't want to invade to change them, but but should it be? What should it be doing, if anything? Let's assume we could get back to a place where the Iran deal were working and we were there was you know. Things had kind of calmed down. Let's assume it was four years ago.、Um, what would you be at, advocating, if anything, on those on these fronts? So you know, four years ago,、um, the Obama administration actually did a number of really creative things. You'll remember、um, working with internet providers.、Um, we should be actually. We should be making it easy for Iranians to come and go between the two societies, so that、um, because the most potent—I mean, number one—the most potent force for change in Iran, like any place else, is the people there, and encouraging and making it easier for those people 
who are pushing for change within their own society and who want to take responsibility for change in their own society, who don't want to ride it on the back of a U.S. tank, and helping them get resources where they need training, which is less than we think, helping them get that. Um, the, you know, One of the things that's most um, that the Russians hated and is arguably one of the things that, that brought on um, – some of the Putin pushback and was why he hates Hillary Clinton so much is the, the cross country training is not, you know, not Iranians get taught by Americans about democracy, but Iranians get taught by Georgians about what works in color revolutions or Iranians get taught by Egyptian activists about what didn't work after Tahrir Square. Um, so would it still be funded by the national endowment for democracy? I mean, I'm not, I'm not being facetious. I mean, I mean, if the U S hand is seen behind it, you know, I mean, the, 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 you know, this is a generic question. Should we be – because this is seen as meddling in elections, right? Putin genuinely sees it that way. I don't think he's totally hallucinating. We were trying to influence the outcome of the Ukrainian election. And we weren't doing it, you know, the, the in the most nefarious way, but we were doing it. And, and it's a form of um, – it's a form of, of intervention, not military. Uh, but you're 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 okay in principle with the U.S. funding that stuff. You just think we shouldn't be too conspicuously involved, or what? So there's, and I also think actually this is something that we need to reinvent and renegotiate in part for the reasons you cite, but also because frankly, there's a lot of cases where the non-governmental sector does this better, and. But that also, it's interesting because do you differentiate if um, if it's funded by a State Department grant or if it's funded by an open society grant, Putin still perceives it as the U.S. trying to mm-hmm. trying to meddle in the elections, even if, you know, you could imagine a world in which um, the U.S. entity or let's say you have a President Biden. And then you have a right-wing funder that is funding democracy groups in Iran. At the same time as the right-wing funder is funding, you know, sort of against a Biden administration, but the government of Iran is still going to perceive all of that as, as U.S. interference. So there is a – I interrupted myself there to say there is a damned if you do, damned if you don't. And it's all perceived as coming from the U.S. government, whether it is or not. But I'd actually – I would actually like to see the mechanisms of how – how we think about all of that reimagined to, to recognize, you know, just in, in part because the private sector is more flexible, but also, I mean, because of the deliberate ways that we've destroyed um, and we've turned our development agencies into contracting agencies, mm-hmm. um, that there is a lot of, there's a lot of reinvention and rethinking about what's the role of the U S government versus what's the role of, of the, the um, not-for-profit mm-hmm. community. But yes, um, what we shouldn't be doing is inventing programs that don't come from folks in within a state. And we've done plenty of that in the past, and it doesn't end well. Mm-hmm. So you just a few minutes ago alluded to a, a kind of a broad question when you said that, you know, uh, there's value in, a, in individual Iranians having contact with the U.S. and and so on. Ultimately, change comes from the people. It, this is a question about the power of engagement. I, I, I think at the moment, um, people are kind of down on the idea that economic engagement is a good thing in and of itself. Because supposedly, if we engaged with China, they were going to move in our direction. Uh, if anything, over the last 10 years, they've moved in the other direction. 
Maybe people were hoping for too much too soon, but in any event, they're disappointed. Um, and so, and, and, you know, to the extent that you believe in economic engagement, uh, as, as an inherently good thing whose benefits go beyond the economic realm into the political and social realm, then you're going to be skeptical of using, uh, certain kinds of economic tools, at least. Uh, as incentives, uh, because ultimately you have to deliver on threats. And if those threats mean, you know, shutting off commerce and, and that can escalate into a kind of a tit for tat thing, you can wind up pretty disengaged. I, I, do I, I take it that you are a, are you a believer in the power of economic engagement? So, you know, the China example is a very specific thing. And I think we always have to say that the Chinese government used economic engagement with the West to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in a really unprecedented way. And like the trouble with being a a liberal is that you got to you got to acknowledge that even if you would have liked to see their political system be different and you would have liked the U.S. political system to have risen to the occasion and not abandoned um Americans in some communities that were economically devastated by that. But so, so a, just having raised the China case, I want to, I want to make that point. Mm -hmm. B, um, I think where we go wrong, actually both with sanctions and with economic engagement is that we think that we can use them in a very kind of tab a fit slot B way. And that we think we can use economics to change how states perceive their fundamental security or, or survival imperatives. And that, you know, the, the, the literature on sanctions in particular is really unambiguous. You, you, you can't, you can't do that. It doesn't. They, they just don't work very well as a rule. Is that saying too much? Um, they don't, mm-hmm. the, the bigger and more diffuse your objective is the less well they work mm-hmm. for targeted objectives. They work really well. And where, where engagement, I think the places that you can really count to point to economic engagement making a difference, actually the, the examples that I like the best are, are the EU, right? So the EU and Northern Ireland and the EU and the Balkans. And that's a place where you have, um, you have factions of leaders that are, that are split and that have choices to make about how they want to engage with the rest of the world. And the EU presents them a choice. And it's a very appealing choice. And I mean, in the case of, of the, um, the Irish conflict, it's just, it's had an amazingly positive, positive outcome, which seems not good to be um, able to survive even Brexit screwing it up. But, but so that, but that's, um, you, you, you're applying the economic incentive at a moment where there is a genuine choice that the leaders are facing instead of saying, as I think we too often do on both the sanctions side and the engagement side, well, there isn't really an alternative. There isn't really a political alternative. I mean, Iran's actually a great example of this, right? There is not a well-constructed political alternative in Iran right now. So, you know, our friends in the Trump administration and their friends in the W administration who said, oh, you know, all we have to do is impose enough sanctions and, you know, opposition will come along. That's not how it works. That it, it doesn't appear out of nowhere. So we kind of we try to use economics as a as a um, to, like as a virgin birth. And it doesn't it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Like virgin births don't work that way either. <laughs> virgin births don't work. Period. Um, the the uh, yeah. No, I think their their actual goal is to collapse. Is is to 
collapse the regime with no no plan at all as to what what happens next. I, I but um, I'll, I'll leave that to them to figure out. So uh, so to kind of try to step back and summarize where you stand. Let me just say a couple of things and maybe ask a question or two. So you seem bro- you seem broadly in the tradition of liberal internationalism. Um, but, you know, when you look at the series of events that have led some people to see liberal interventionism as almost synonymous with liberal internationalism, uh, it sounds to me like you have doubts about the wisdom of a number of those events and would like your internationalism to be less interventionist, hard as it may be to create hard and fast rules in advance um about when to uh intervene militarily i mean um the uh well so far is that right yeah i think the other thing that we haven't really talked about at all and again this is where i um i'm drinking from the progressive pool more is that my internationalism is more focused on justice uh global and- justice Glo- yes. global well, both in, again in the in the U.S. and global context, and more focused on. I mean, and it's when we we've been talking very much about traditional state to state relations and threats, and I'm um, certainly. I mean, we haven't really talked about climate at all. We sort of touched on health security only briefly, but but my liberal internationalism is one that that moves into um, sort of organizing around those threats as, as, or opportunities or whatever you want to call them as primary, which then means that you have to transcend the old institutions, which is where I get off the boat with my, my many dear friends and colleagues who have a more restorationist approach to the liberal order. Well, okay. So, I mean, first of all, as for, um, Climate change and, and and global health policy, I think, it, you know, goes without saying you'd like to see a lot more of that, including, I assume, in the form of international agreements that the U.S. is actual and an enthusiastic participant in. Um, the uh, when you when you distinguish yourself from the restorationists, though, are you suggesting that the old institutions are not going to always be the right fora and we may have to be more ad hoc, sometimes settle for regional agreements uh, that don't, uh, that are just uh, to some extent improvised. What, exa- what exactly do you mean when you say you're, you're not a pure restorationist? Um, I mean that whether it's NATO or whether it's the WTO, um, just to pick those two, are probably not, again, going to function the way they did in the 90s. And rather than keep trying to make them function the way they did in the 90s, we need to ask, how can they function now? What can they do? What can they not do? And do we need to... To your point, do we need ad hoc arrangements? Do we need new, more universal arrangements? And honestly, are there some things that we had that we're just not going to have? Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to, 
I mean, like we're, we're at this moment right now where because, frankly, we don't know how much more of the existing infrastructure is going to get battered in the coming, you know, hopefully only months, but also possibly years. So we're really at a moment where I think the right stance is, is – um, is inquisitive about all these things. Like if you, again, you shouldn't, you shouldn't know what institutions we do and don't need next. Okay. And, and just quickly, why can't the WTO re- return to the status quo ante or at least the status quo pre-Trump? I mean, Trump has kind of paralyzed it by refusing to uh, permit judges to, uh, you know, to, to, uh, you know, the, the, the highest adjudicatory appeals kind of court is paralyzed because Trump won't let new judges fill the vacated slots. Um, it's but, not clear that you can do climate. Um, it's not clear that you can you can do the kinds of both carrots and sticks that we want to transform trade in a in a carbon neutral oh, and friendly way. And it's not clear that you can do the kinds of um, social social policy, worker policy that you need to to kind of restore the trust of. Um, okay, but. but- but environment. One more thing, sorry, one more thing. Also, yeah. China is in the WTO and ignores many of its core, its foundational principles. And so going back to the status quo ante means going back to something where, and like this is, this is Trump's evil genius, right? I mean, he's not wrong in saying that the WTO isn't working because China just ignores it. And we, as currently constructed, have no, we have not yet done anything successful to get China to stop ignoring it. So that's a status quo ante that we can't. Go back. Okay. On the labor and environmental thing, though, those were never part of the W two. I would like them to become that if possible, but they but they never were, right? Um. So the um, there's a um a writer named Beth Baltan, former USTR trade lawyer, US former USTR, former Hill, who's written a lot about the Havana Charter, which was negotiated as part of the package of post war agreements that created the liberal international order. The Havana Charter had um, provisions that allowed countries to exercise some control over movements of capital, which would have um, prevented some of the worst excesses of of this period. Mm-hmm. And it had some provisions that would have allowed um, concern with labor rights and um, couldn't get it through Congress in the post-war period. So it went away and, you know, we had GATT instead. So there is... There is precedent way back at the origins of the the liberal international order for those things. Um, no, they aren't. It, and and again, the WTO. Not only are they not in the WTO, but depending on how you interpret the core statutes of the WTO, you can't you can't do you can't have some of the preferences that um, that climate focused trade policy. Inherently means you. But, have. but in your ideal world, you'd be happy to see a more left-leaning WTO that does address inter- environmental issues, that does um, permit uh, some concern for the impact of free trade on individual nations, labor situations, and and so on. In my ideal world, those aren't even left-leaning. That you can also do them. You can also do them in right-leaning ways. Um, it does require. Um, and the WTO mostly works by consensus, so it requires really comprehensive reform, which is a very interesting thing to contemplate at this particular moment in time. Yeah. Okay. So just finally, uh, tell me if I have you – two things. Tell me if I have you wrong when I uh, infer from a sequence of things you said that when you talk about justice, including global justice – 
at least one thing you mean is uh, environmental policy that uh, tends to the needs of less powerful nations, including the impact of climate change on them, and health policy that tends to the needs of less powerful nations. That's 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 a connection you're making there, right? Yeah, but it's interesting that you're thinking in terms of states, and I'm also thinking about groups within states. She, yeah, okay. Okay, so both of those, right. Um, yeah, I mean, pro- it's probably true in all countries that poorer people are more likely to... Uh, live on land that's more exposed to environmental calamity that that tends to happen um the uh and then so finally uh i i want to hear anything else you want to say about what you mean by when you call yourself a pragmatist uh variant kind of of liberal internationalism and i th- and i think you would you would use the word progressive as well it sounds like um and and maybe uh situate yourself with respect to um one thing we're hearing a, 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 a an ideological sector we're hearing a little more from in Washington which is kind of realism and in particular the kind of restraint uh subset of realism i guess um you know you're familiar with the Quincy Institute uh, as as the institutional embodiment of of uh varieties of realism really some close more on the right and some more on the left um do you want to do any comparing and contrasting uh between yourself and that kind of emerging um species sure so um just a couple of and again i think we're in this very interesting moment where we're all kind of in in gradations and so you know a million disclaimers but um i um as you've been hearing throughout our conversation i resist um realism's continued um focus on the state as sort of the only unit of analysis um, I think we're, I think we're, as a, as a pragmatist, I pragmatically look around and I think we're a little past that. Um, I resist, um, sort of the manifest, the manifestation of realism in the U.S. right now as being sort of overwhelmingly concerned with military power and military force at the expense of other elements of both other elements of national power and other things that there are in the international system and that you could do in the international system. So if, if I have one frustration with the conversation on the left is that I find it very hard to talk about, um, to talk about justice and to talk about climate in forward leaning terms of what we would do as opposed to what we wouldn't do and I just temperamentally I'm much more interested in the what we would do conversation and as I mentioned earlier I I think one of the tasks before us is to really excavate how all of the schools are based in a kind of 19th century euro american um highly colonialist informed um view of power and and that I don't think that any I don't think that any tendency in US foreign policy is ahead of any other in terms of confronting the 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 racism and colonialism in its own outlook on the world and I'm very interested in doing that I'm very interested in sort of 
goading the liberal internationalists to do that, but I'm also interested in goading the realists to look at themselves and do that too. So maybe those are the, um, those are the final comments I wanted to make. Okay. It sounds like, uh, there is part of the word restraint that you like though, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, maybe it, the whole word, but I mean, you, you, you're not a, you're not a realist restrainer, but you'd like to see more restraint. It's impossible to look at, um, the last, um, you know, certainly since um, in the post-2001 era and say that the, what the U.S. needs is less restraint, right? So, Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Although, yeah. Yeah, and I also, I just, I guess the other thing is the restraint slash realism provides, and I, I say this to my liberal internationalist friends all the time, it's a really valid critique that you need to read and wrestle with. I don't think it is yet a sufficiently fully developed theory of, theory of how to be a great power because it's so focused on the dimensions of state and military force, but you're also, you're an incomplete thinker if you're not wrestling with the, the, mm-hmm. the critique that it raises. Okay. That's a very diplomatic note to end on. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Heather. This has been very uh, interesting and illuminating and people, as we said, can find your work uh, well at, at the Daily Intelligence or New York Magazine. What's your Twitter handle? At Natsec Heather. NATSEC, as in national security. Correct. Okay. Well, we will see you online. Thanks again. You're so welcome.